So today is May 13, 2018 in Seattle, and this is just an open session. Uh, we're focusing mostly on parenting. Uh, there's other questions also, but the main focus is on parenting. Do we have some questions from people over the internet, Prabhu? Rajaram? I have a seven-year-old, seven-and-a-half-year-old son, and it becomes a challenge for me to push him for studies. He, he doesn't want to study, he just wants to play. I know this is the you know age to play, but then at the same time, the disciplining, right? I mean, where to be warm and nice, and sometimes, and then you have to be very strict also. But the balance between, you know, disciplining, being nice, and then, you know, being strict as well. So, it gets a little confused, and I try to do different things. Sometimes some things work, it doesn't work, because, yeah, so I'm sometimes puzzled. Okay, well, first of all, all children would rather play than study. Uh, that's just part of being a child. And the other thing is that there's nothing that always works because we're free-willed beings. Just like with ourselves. Is, is there anything you can do with yourself that always works? No, right? So, if we're... Even if uh, you're working with a machine, even my machines don't always work. Right? I, I do this with my machine, and it works every day, and then one day it doesn't work. Who knows? Why today it doesn't work? So even with machines, it's like that. And when you're dealing with living beings, uh, it's even worse. <laughs> you know, what will work, what not work. So if you're looking for something that is always going to work, and if you think that you're going to get a child to absolutely be happy to put down their toys and study, that, that's not going to happen. So let, let's get the expectations that my, child is, my seven-year-old child is going to prefer play to study, and there's no particular technique that will always work. So what you want to do is you want to have a toolbox full of many different tools. Not just one. And when you try one, and it, one may work for some time, and then if it doesn't work, you have some backup. So one thing, of course, and you know, you're talking a seven-year-old child. So frankly, uh, you know, I was a, a school teacher for many years, 27 years. I did not give any homework to children under the age of nine. At all. Like, no homework under the age of nine. And I didn't start requiring completion of a certain amount of work at school until age seven. So part of the problem may be a school that is requiring too much of too young of children. You know, there's many parts of the world in fact, the parts of the world that have the best education systems often don't even start formal schooling until age seven. Like in Finland and Sweden, they, they don't even require schooling until age seven. So Prabhupada consistently said that schooling should start at age five. I mean, he talked about nursery schools for children under the age of five, but formal schooling at five. But there's a gradual, Prabhupada would talk about uh, Chanika Pandit, who said from age five to ten, you gradually increase the discipline. By discipline, I mean, I understand them to mean responsibility, not punishment. And that starting at age ten, you start to become very strict. So, basically, from that advice of Chanika, 
and from just people who study child development and child psychology like Piaget. Uh, seven is a little young to expect any kind of real discipline with study. And in my own just practical experience as a teacher, when you try to push discipline study too young, the children learn to play in their mind. And it act they actually are being trained to be unfocused. You know, if you try to force them externally to be focused, internally they become unfocused. So that's, you're, you're actually better off at having a little softer approach until the child's a little older. And, I mean, some things to keep in mind uh, is that, and I, I really, were you born in, in India and raised in India? So this is a very different country and a very different culture. We don't have the same kind of competition for colleges and universities and jobs that you do in India. And there, there's a YouTube video called Indian Parents. And it, it starts off, it's a, the husband has a beard and a bathrobe. And that's how you can tell it's the one I'm talking about. You might want to watch that. You know, I, I had one parent of, of a child in our Gurukula. The child was like six, seven years old took his child out of our school because the child failed one spelling test. And I said, but he got an excellent grade on his report card. That one test didn't even matter. And he said, how will he get his master's degree? I said, no one is going to look at his report card from the second grade. I said, colleges are probably only going to look at grades 11 and 12. I mean, like my, my granddaughter here is, is going to go into the running start at Bellevue College. And so it had a thing you had to have, she's homeschooled. They wanted her high school transcript from homeschooled. But then when I called them, they said, oh, we don't care. As long as she's enrolled in the associate degree program, we don't care what the transcript is. We just give an entrance exam and we go by that and we don't care. So what to speak of, you know, what you're doing when you're seven. So you want to think, what am I doing this for? Why am I pushing so hard at age seven? What you really want in the modern day and age is you want the children to be very good at basic understanding and to know how to think and to know how to research and to love learning. At the present time, you can find out almost anything in five seconds on the internet. Am I correct? You know, when my parents went to school, you had to memorize books. You don't need to memorize books anymore. It's not necessary. So it's really, it's a different set of skills to be successful in the modern world. And the, the main thing you want is people who love learning and know, know how to, they know how to research, they know how to discriminate between what's a fact and what's an opinion. So it's much more important that he loves to learn 
than that he's super disciplined at age seven. And if you're super disciplining kills the love for learning, then you've actually just shot yourself in the foot. So what kind of techniques, because you're asking me about techniques, but I'm starting with the mindset. So if the mindset is okay, now I've got to switch to my mean mother mode. I was, I've got to have a balance between my fun mother mode and my mean mother mode. And how much do I get in the mean mother mode? Um, that probably isn't the best perspective. So there's all sorts of systems of... Uh, there's all kinds of reward systems and acknowledgement systems that work with kids. Uh, one thing we've been doing that's, that's been quite effective for a long time is that we had different things that the kids needed to do every day. One of them was schoolwork. So we have schoolwork, we have household chores, we have you know, being nice to other people, <laughs> putting your clothes away, well, all kinds of things. And each of these has a different number of points. And then we have little uh, strips of, like, foam that we got at a craft store. And each different color is for different things with different points. And the kids manage it themselves. When they finish their schoolwork, they take the schoolwork color thing and they put it in their little bag, their little thing. When they put their clothes away, they put that token in their bag. And the kids can give each other what we call love points. So if any time in the day if someone's being really nice, you can stick a love token in there. And if someone's rude or insulting, then you can put a negative token in there. And then at the end of the day, we, we add up how many points they have, and we have some little, some little dried fruit and some little something that they can have as a a treat, but a lot of the reward is just the act of putting the token in their place and counting up the numbers. And it was, I think the systems work for a while because the children themselves have a lot of agency. What did you say, Nit? You were always telling me that nothing works all the time. Nothing works. Well, I started out with that. There's nothing works all the time. 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 Not even with machines and certainly not with people. Just doesn't. You know? I always give this example with husband and wife. You know, the, the husband's favorite food is lasagna, so you make lasagna on Monday. And he's like, wow, you made lasagna. So you make it on Tuesday. And he says, two days in a row. <laughs> you know, so it's just, it's just what it is. What it is, you know, it's, it's we're people and we're not formulaic. Even as I say, machines don't always work the way you want them to work. I use a computer, and certain things the computer always gets right. Usually, <laughs> some some day you're like, "Wait, well, I always do this, and it works. And why isn't it working? I have to close the program, reopen it, restart the computer." <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that's a system we found that's been very effective. A similar system that my daughter used to do in the Gurukul was that the kids had little booklets that she would make. I'm sure you can buy some like this at a teacher's store. And each page was for a different activity. Again, so there was one page for getting your homework done. There was one page for, you know, 
chanting the verses nicely, whatever you want to do. And each page had little squares, like a little uh, table. Like, you know, sometimes uh, at a car wash, like if you get 10 car washes and you get the 11th one free and they stamp them. You seen those sort of things? So it was like that. So each page had whatever it was, 10 little squares. And every day that they got it done, she'd put a stamp wherever they wanted. She'd put it, you know, in different... Oh, I know what it was. I know what it was. I'm getting it wrong. What it was was each page was a different reward. That's what it was. Each page was a different reward. So one page was like getting a maha plate... One page was having extra play time. That's what it was, was different rewards. And then when they got their schoolwork done, they'd get a stamp for each subject, but they could get it on each page that they wanted. So, okay, where do you want your stamp? I want my stamp on the free Maha page. I want my stamp on the extra play time page, whatever. And then once they filled up a page, then they got that reward. So, again, that worked very well because it was, again, something that the kids had a lot of control over. They felt that they had a lot of autonomy. Uh, then there are just ways of, of dealing with people that are more likely than not to be effective. Again, don't look for a formula that will work like your kid's a car that you turn the key and they turn on. But uh, there's a system called nonviolent communication, which is a really respectful way to deal with other people in general. A similar system is there in a book called Parent Effectiveness Training, PET. Another really excellent book is How to Talk So Kids Can Listen and How to Listen So Kids Can Talk. Uh, those are three I know of that are just excellent. Another one is uh, by Karen Pryor, P-R-Y-R-R, P-R-Y-O-R, called Don't Shoot the Dog. Um, I give a seminar based on her book, which is eight ways of changing, uh, she lists eight ways of changing bad behavior and how you can do it. So those are some sources I can recommend to you just for general dealings with your child that create a general mood of respect in the family. And if you use any of those systems, they're all a little different, but they all have a, a basic premise of dealing with each other with respect. And when you deal with your kid with respect, your kid is a lot more likely to deal with you with respect. Basically, and you're you're modeling for them how to deal respectfully. So, in all of those, there's some degree of negotiation. The sort of things that human beings respond very poorly to are commands. We were all like that. We all respond very poorly to commands. You know, if you want to get people to respond well to commands, you have to put them through some very intensive psychological distress which is what's done, say, in boot camp in the military. So in order to train people in the military to respond well to commands, they don't let them get enough sleep. They scream at them all the time. You know, they, have, they do all sorts of things which in ordinary life would be considered, frankly, abusive and criminal. But that way they... The, the people's psychology gets adjusted so that they will tend to obey commands. But mostly, most human beings under most circumstances are not favorably disposed to commands. 
It just... That's the least effective way to get anybody to do anything. It can be used rarely. If it's used very rarely, it can be effective, but generally it's not effective. So that's a long answer, but hopefully that was all right. Yes? Hey Krishna, thank you very much for such a wonderful announcement. I have two questions. My daughter is studying uh, She's 13. Okay. She's studying in India, Mayapur. We just moved last year. Oh. Smith. You're not in Mayapur. You're here in Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> I got a good fortune to okay. take some of your association now. So I wanted to understand that how can we serve with a clear understanding, clarity that our guidance and help can be just comes from the response, responsibility and love rather than our own ego and frustration. Are you talking about in general? In, in, this is a struggle like we, we take for granted whatever we do, we are doing out of love and responsibility. But like how... How do we know that? How do we know that? Yeah. Okay, well, it's rather foolish to take for granted that everything I'm doing is out of love and responsibility. Because when I look at other people, it's very easy to see that that's not true for them, right? Yes. <laughs> when I look at others, I'm like, they're not doing that out of love and responsibility, are they? They're doing that out of ego. So if I can see that in other people, and the more you chant Hare Krishna, the more clearly you can see that in other people, then probably other people can see that in you. Yes. So how do we know? Does anyone have a Bhagavad Gita handy? We don't mind children's noises in a class about children, by the way. We don't mind children's noises at all, but in a class about parenting, if we minded children's noises, that would be rather inconsistent. Okay, so you have Bhagavad Gita 9.2. Is Raja Vidya Raja Guyam Pavitram Paramambhavam? Um, no. Raja Vidya Raja Guyam Pavitram Idam Uttamam Prachakshavagamam Dharmam Susukam Kartamavyam. So this is a very nice verse as a benchmark. So Raja Vidya, Raja Guya. When we're acting out of love and responsibility, we get insight into very secret esoteric truth. We get what we call in ISKCON a realization, which the Christian world calls an epiphany. One of those... Oh, well, you just see things. A eureka moment. So this Raja Vidya, Raja Guyam, it's very secret knowledge, and it's the king of knowledge. You'll understand things as they are. Krishna says this later on about the mode of goodness, where he says that those in the mode of goodness know what is to be done, what is not to be done, what is binding, what is liberating, what is to be feared, what is not to be feared. So one sign that you're acting with the right motives is you'll see things properly. You'll understand the essence of things. You'll understand the secret knowledge underneath everything else. Pavitram, it's very purifying. So if you're acting properly, you will feel purified. You'll feel not very interested in materialistic things. You won't have to be repressing. 
It won't be an aversion and a repressing. It won't be... Not like that. But you just... It's just not appealing. So, idem utimam, above... Utimam literally means above ignorance. And you'll see that you're above ignorance. You're not lazy. You're not dirty. And I was talking to some people today about um, some mess. And they said, oh, we're, we're too lazy. We're too lazy to be clean. So that's a sign of the mode of ignorance. All right, then you have pratyakshavagamam dharmam. So pratyakshar is you have direct realization. It's not theoretical. When we're acting out of love and responsibility, our realizations are direct and experiential. Not just theory, not just we're reading something and we say, "Oh yeah, intellectually I understand that," but we see things very clearly. Dharmyam, dharmyam means again the essence of something, the reality, what's authentic. So the first time I ever had a tree ripened, locally grown peach was when I was, I think, maybe twenty, twenty-one years old. And when I was eating this peach, I realized that until that time, I'd never really eaten a peach. Just buying things from the shop that were transported for a long way. The flavor was different. And when I had this tree-ripened, locally grown peach, I thought, ah, this is the real thing. It's like the difference between uh, if you get some like mango-flavored drink and you actually eat a mango. So you will, what you will experience in your service will be this taste of authenticity. Susukam, you'll be very joyful. When we're acting out of ego, we are not joyful. We may have a kind of energy, there's a kind of energy in the mode of ignorance, but it won't be expansive joy. So, And this joy, it says later on in the Bhagavad Gita, is experienced at every moment. It's not like just some temporary thing in the mind, but it's like this... this Expansive joy. So these are the, the, the avyayam. It's everlasting. It says, it's not like the momentary happiness that comes and goes. So, of course, this is not on-off. We tend to be sometimes acting out of love and responsibility and sometimes out of ego. But more and more and more, as we act out of real love and responsibility, we will experience this. We'll understand secret knowledge We'll just know things. We'll just understand things. We'll become purified. We won't exhibit behavior in the mode of ignorance. We'll get direct realization of spiritual life. We'll have an experience of authenticity in our life. And we'll be full of joy. So if those aren't our subjective internal experiences, then we're acting out of ego. That, that's, a, that's a subjective test for ourselves as to what my motives are. Uh, we talk a little bit in, uh, in Raghunath Goswami's book, Sri Manashiksha, which I taught the last time I was here, and he has this metaphor of bathing in donkey urine. So bathing in donkey urine is where you think you're taking a bath because of some kind of liquid going on you, so you think I'm getting a bath. But after your bath in donkey urine, you smell very bad. And not only do you smell very bad, but the donkey urine is acidic, and so it's burning. So this is a metaphor for doing devotional service or other things 
with the wrong motive. And if you're apparently doing devotional service or you're apparently doing your duties, whatever it is in the world, but you have this deep burning dissatisfaction, there's something wrong with the motives. Now, in order to be able to tell, you have to be a little sensitive in the first place. You know, if I gave this example to just some ordinary meat-eating, beer-drinking person, they're not astute enough and to even notice whether their internal mental state is one of burning or one of joy and satisfaction. They're, they can't even ascertain something like that. So you do have to be at a certain level of purification in your life. You have to be at least following the regulative principles and, and, and doing something before you even have enough ability to have this sort of discernment for yourself. Is that okay? When you, you you talked about few Speak books, like you, you, you gave some a few examples of books like about parenting. Parenting. Is there any like okay? We can start reading the books and applying some techniques in our own way. Is there any help we can get professional help? Within Iskand and outside Iskand, where do you suggest? There is a, the Grahasta Vision Team actually also has a book on parenting. I just remember that. The Grahasta Vision Team has put out a book on parenting. And there's another book on parenting put out by the Congregational Ministry. I just realized we have two books done by devotees on parenting. And I'm not sure if the Grahasta Vision Team actually has a seminar on parenting. I know they have two seminars on married life. But you could check on VaishnavFamilyResources.org, I think. Uh, you can check there and see if they have any courses on parenting. But some of these books are also connected with courses. So the How to Talk So Kids Can Listen, How to Listen So Kids Can Talk, they do have courses. And I'm pretty sure Parent Effectiveness Training has courses and Nonviolent Communication definitely has courses. There's also, uh, Beer Krishna Maharaj did a book about compassion. Do you remember the name of that book? Vaishnav Compassion, maybe? Or Vaishnav Empathy? Or I don't know, it's a... Vaishnav Empathy. It's got a picture of Radharika, picture of Aditi Radharani on the cover. It's on Amazon. So that's a book based on nonviolent communication. And it's not on just for parenting per se, but dealings in general. And he also teaches courses. And then I've taught courses. I have a number of classes I've given on parenting, which you can find online. And I've given courses on discipline, which you can also find online. Will we able to will we able to check and balance with like how do you say we go to the counselor and we just take the help from the counselor like that when even if with you know putting Lakshmi but is there any any way we can okay I have this question I have this issue like how we are asking you today like is there any online like any any continuous help you can ask with the Grahasta Vision team if they have something as far as devotees. I'm sure among the non-devotees is stuff, I mean, I can't believe that there isn't, but I don't know something right off the top of my head. Oh, okay. But you can ask with the Grahas Division team if they have some ongoing, something like that. Of course, you can always, on an individual level, find somebody who's trained in experience who's willing to guide you. Sometimes, this is like if, you, if you're in the wrong place, 
you're gone. <laughs> you know, I just, I can find out some, I tried something like, but I'm not sure if once we go, at some point of time, you know, we realize that, okay, I, I'm completely in the wrong place. That's why I need yeah, but that's but that's, all, but that's always the risk. Okay. I don't know how you can live life without that risk. If you figure it out, let me know. I don't know how to do it. Yes? I wanted to make a comment. I think you're supposed to have a microphone if there's one on. Is there one on the lady's side? I want to make a comment that one of the greatest lessons in parenting is that there are some things that are beyond you. And knowing when your limit has been reached and being able to say, okay, I'm a jiva, I am imperfect, and uh, this is something I need to consult experts for. And sometimes Krishna will tell you that, and sometimes, uh, and Krishna's always telling you, but he's using an instrument. So be aware of those instruments, because if you don't listen, then it will keep happening more and more loud until you can't ignore it anymore, and then it may hurt. So be humble, and parenting, you must be humble. It is, I, I don't know if there's anything that can humble you more than being a parent. <laughs> so I always tell people, you have to, if you're a parent, you have to be humble and patient, or you have to give your children away. Or, or you have to go completely crazy. Those are your, your options, you know. It's like you really, you really don't have any other options. So, you have a question to ask? So, Mataji, I just want to let you know that uh, I also got some anonymous questions so that you don't identify who asked that question. Okay, sure. So, um, so I have two anonymous questions and one question online. I'm just letting you know the queue of the questions, but we'll go around and give the priority for the devotees who is here in the temple. Why don't you say one of them? Okay. So this is an anonymous question that came. How one can tackle sibling rivalry in children? Sibling rivalry in children. Well, Prabhupada said competition gives life. And Prabhupada actually encouraged a lot of sibling rivalry in ISKCON. It was something he strongly, deliberately, and consistently encouraged. Prabhupada encouraged the temples to compete for who could distribute the most books. And we were competing between the temples, we were competing between the temples and the traveling Sankirtan parties and the BBT party, and it was really a competition. We were having a very strong rivalry to please Srila Prabhupada. And in the spiritual world, and when Krishna comes to the material world, the devotees also have competitions to please him. So the coward boys are saying, I'm going to touch Krishna first, or I'm going to touch Krishna first, or I'm going to touch Krishna first. And, you know, Krishna gives Rukmini one parijata flower, and he gives Satyabhama a whole parijata tree. Just imagine that. A flower and a tree. And, you know, Rukmini didn't have any rivalry. And so Krishna was trying to induce her to have a feeling of rivalry. And so he's talking to her and he says, I don't know if you really should have married me. I don't have any possessions and the, the kings of the world don't like me and I come to work out of cowardice. And he gives her all these reasons. He said, you know, your marriage is supposed to be between equals. You're a princess. Nobody even knows who I am. I grew up as a cowherd. 
And she still didn't get angry. He was, you know, said, I wanted you to become angry. And the Acharya said that Krishna had hoped when he got Satchabama the tree that Rukmini would be a little jealous. So, you know, even in the spiritual world, there's some competition. So the, the point is not to stop competition and rivalry, but the point is to have it be in a way that's favorable. So you don't want parents to be favoring one child over another, you know, or putting down one child and, crit- and praising another child. And I had read this story once of uh, this family where there were like five, six kids. And at the father's funeral, one of the kids said, my dad always told me that I was his favorite and he always told me not to tell anybody else. And each of the six kids said, my dad always told me that I was the favorite and not to tell anybody else. So, you know, you don't want to have a mood where, um, where the parent is contributing to it. And then you want to teach the children how to play cooperatively. So if you're going to look at how to encourage cooperative and healthy competition, then you're looking at, again, how to, going back to discipline techniques. So then, again, I've listed those sources of ways you can deal with children so that they're much more likely to behave the way that you want them. But if you're trying to eliminate, my point in the beginning is if you're trying to eliminate rivalry, that doesn't seem to be a, a good or even a possible idea. But you do want to eliminate malicious or envious or cruel rivalry. So again, I would suggest those, those sources. And I do have a, a seminar on eight ways to change behavior based on Karen Pryor's book. And uh, that might be very helpful. Somebody else here in the room? Yes. Hare Krishna. Hi, Krishna. Um, actually, I have a question. Like, everyone is individual. And so sometimes, like, uh, parents generally give the same treatment to all the kids. But I have seen my practical, like, like so many examples around that. Even, I mean, parents are saying, we are giving same treatments to all the kids. But some kids totally behave than the other one. So, yes. for example, one of my very neighbors back in India, their parents, they are just two kids. And one son is very sincere in study and pious and everything. Other son actually end up actually involved in one of the murder. So, I mean, Ooh. very childhood means hardly 15 years or 14 years, teenager. So, I don't see any difference that they are not treating other person, other kid than other. Almost same treatment, right? But how come somebody behaves totally different? And just that's one thing. The second thing also, um, so what I've started believing that, okay, it comes naturally. It's inborn qualities. Each kid has its inborn qualities. Some are past. So sometimes in devotional committee, for my example, my family also, I have two daughters, but one is a little bit sincere, other is like, so how, uh, so sometimes I think that how much we should like force them to do, okay, go temple, go do this, mm. do that. I mean, if it's not coming from her, from inside, to what extent we should force her? Because well, this it is, this gives is us, us frustration, because rather than, okay, why she's not doing, then we, we need to stop somewhere, right? Or should we just keep doing that, or we should stop somewhere? Now okay, so this is a, a, very, a complex question, because you started off with what's the relationship between nature and nurture? And the answer is, I don't know any human being who knows the answer to that question. 
This is a question that, you know, medical professionals and psychologists and psychologists and sociologists have been debating for as long as there's been human beings. What's the relationship between nature and nurture? Now, if it was only nature, then I don't see that Krishna would have arranged for human beings to have this long, 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 long childhood. We have the longest childhood, according to Shastra, of any species in the universe. You know, animals don't have more than, I mean, the max is probably about two years. And among the demigods, it says that, you know, they have a very short pregnancy and the children grow up right away. They don't have a, a big childhood among the demigods. So what is the function of childhood? What is the purpose for this extremely long childhood among the human beings? I mean, it takes at least 12, 13 years before you know, somebody reaches puberty, and even then they're not fully grown. A human is not fully grown until at least 16, often 20, physiologically, yeah? And they say psychologically, mentally, you're not fully mature probably to about 24 or 25. Isn't it? So what's the purpose of that? If there was only nature, why would Krishna have arranged that? That's the first question to ask yourself. There must be a very large role of nurture. There's got to be. And we also see evidences of children whose nature was one way and because they were nurtured in another way they turned out differently. We've seen, right? Uh, children who were in terrible situations and with the right nurture and the right adults they turned around and children who start out really good and because of the wrong situation they become degraded. We, we see that all the time. So there's a big role of nurture. But what is it exactly? Who knows? You know, and there's been so many studies done, particularly with identical twins that were separated at birth on this point. You know, like identical twins who were adopted, and they were adopted in different families. One of the most interesting stories in this regard was something in the New York Times within the last year, I think, was that these, uh, it was in South, I think it was in South America, that two women each gave birth to identical twin boys in the same hospital around the same time. And one boy from each set was switched at, at, right after birth. So each mother thought that she'd given birth to fraternal twins. And one set of these boys was raised in the city by a very wealthy family, very sophisticated, very well-educated. The other set was raised in the country by farmers, not very well-educated, and so forth. And uh, when they were teenagers, someone who knew both of them said, you know, there's this guy that looks just like you. I mean, he really looks just like you. And it wasn't until they were something like 17, 18 years old that they realized that two of, the, two of the boys had been raised by their parents and two of the boys had been raised by other than their parents. And what they found was that the, the actual identical twins had certain qualities that were the same as their identical twin, but they also had certain qualities from, their, from the family that raised them. You know, they had both. They had both qualities by nature and qualities by nurture. And again, trying to tease out exactly what comes from what. I mean, there's some fascinating stories of identical tw twins raised separately where they ended up having the same name, 
marrying somebody of the same name at the same time, having the same number of children, the same genders, giving their children the same name, having pets of the same breed that they gave the same name, having the same occupation. One of these instances was of identical twins raised separately, who didn't know they had identical twins, who met because their trucks got into an accident on the highway with each other. And then they discovered that they had these parallel lives. And many times they'll have like the same little idiosyncrasies. So there is a lot to be said for nature. There's definitely a lot to be said for nature. And I think anyone who has more than one child sees that there are differences between the children that cannot be attributed to the way that they're raised. Even if it's not so extreme that one is a saint and one is a criminal, there are certain differences between the children. Some children are very introverted, some are very extroverted. Some are really into study, some are not. Some are very artistic, some are not. I mean, that's just... And you just, you can't attribute it to the environment. It's something innate within the child. So that's definitely true. But then to say that what, the way we raise our children is irrelevant because they have their own nature, that's not true either. It, it really isn't one extreme or another. You know, I think about how in the Vedas, they, they used to be able to do certain rituals in order to produce children of a certain quality. That was a story with, with Parasuram, right? You know that story? Where they, they had this payasa that was switched because his father married a princess. So when his, uh, when his father got, when the, after they got married, his wife wanted a child and his mother-in-law also wanted a child. So he prepared this payasa, one for his mother-in-law to have a ksatriya child and one for his wife to have a Brahmin child. But the mother-in-law thought, oh, my son-in-law is going to favor his wife over his mother-in-law. I'm sure he's given my daughter the better one. So she said to her daughter, please switch. So they switched, and that's how Parasaram of a more of a martial nature appeared in a Brahmin family. And then, of course, the queen ended up giving birth to a child who became a Brahmana. So they knew this sort of science of how to attract a particular kind of child. This science does not seem to be operative today. We, we don't seem to know. I mean, they're trying to do this with IVF and genetics. You know, they're trying to, like, they'll fertilize, you know, five embryos, and then they, they can do, like, you know, sex selection and something. And they're hoping they can engineer humans to be like this or like that in the future. They're doing that by, they're trying to, we should say they're trying to do that with a growth science. Formally, it was done expertly by a subtle science. You know, but even with the subtle science, it doesn't always work. Right now, where I am in the Bhagavatam is where King Anga has this child, Venu. And uh, King Anga did this sort of ritual to have a proper son, but Venu was born and he was a criminal. So there was, there was some problem. Or you have, uh, with the story of Ela and Sujumna, <laughs> which was a little different because there they actually kind of messed up the, the ritual. With Anga, there was, the only mess up was that he gave the payasa to his wife. Who else was he going to give it to? And her father was a very cruel man. So somehow the fact that her father was a very cruel man, even though the ritual was followed, or the father's influence on the grandson was greater than that of the ritual that they performed. 
with the story of Elan Sejuna, there was a king who had no heir, and so he engaged Vasista in doing a yagya that would produce again this payasa to have a, a male heir. And in the middle of the yagya, the queen goes up to the, the pre, one of the priests and says, actually, I want to have a daughter. And so the priest got distracted by this request of the queen. He chanted the mantras for a girl. And so later they had a girl child. So that was actually a, a change in the ritual. But anyway, we don't know these sort of rituals today. I don't, they're not, they don't seem to be available uh, to us on a subtle level. So we don't know exactly what kind of nature child we get. So then your question was, well, should I force my daughter, who's not so inclined, to come to the temple because I may just be wasting my time and energy if that's not her nature? And my answer is, again, there's a purpose in nurture. But make sure it's nurture and not force. As I was saying before, commands is, commands is the least effective way of getting another human being to do what you want. A command is an effective way to get another human being to do what you want in very select, brief circumstances. It's not that, do you do things because of commands as a general rule? No, nobody does. We don't do that. The only way we, we, we do that is if we're, there's some sort of weird psychological training like what they do in the military. But it's, that's not the normal condition of a human being, is just to respond to force and commands. It's, it's, not, it's not who we are. It just, it just doesn't work. Even animals don't work very well that way. You know, even... Um, there's a book I read some years ago called The Man Who Listens to Horses. And it was about how his father had been training horses through violence and cruelty, which was the standard at the time. And he went and observed wild horses... And he observed how the wild horses regulate each other. And so he mimicked that system with horses. He took the position as like the lead horse. And within a half an hour, he could get a horse to be trained without any violence at all. Whereas his father's method was taking six months and using a lot of violence. So even animals, or if you read the book Don't Shoot the Dog, even animals don't tend to respond very well to, to harshness and force and commands. It's, it's not the way to get people to do things. You know, like they have this saying, you can't lead a horse to water. You've all heard that? Yeah. But there's another part of that saying, but you can salt his oats. So, don't drag your horse to water. Put salt in the oats. So again, I've suggested a number of, of resources. I don't have time today to go through all of them all. But I've suggested a number of resources that, that deal much more with, with motivation, with inspiration, with respect, with relationships. You know, we do see that there was a time in human history when children could be dealt with in a, in a more authoritarian way. And you might say, well, you know, Ormila, I, I, my grandfather tells me that his father's word was law, and that was it. Uh, the, the elements of that society are so different than the elements of the society that if you try to copy-paste it, it, it simply won't work. And the main way in which that society was different is that people were not exposed to much outside of their own little community. 
It was very difficult to have long-distance communication. I mean, when I was growing up, my sister moved to Israel when I was one year old, and there was, there was no phones. We couldn't call her. You know, and I'm not that old. <laughs> I mean, I am a great-grandmother, but I'm not that old. It wasn't that long ago that to communicate with people in a distant place was difficult. To get news of people in a distant place took a long time. And so all you saw was your community. That was all you knew was your local community. And so if there was a certain standard in your local community, you tended to follow that because that was all that you knew. And nowadays, that situation doesn't exist at all. Our children know about so many different standards and so many different ways of life outside of that. We don't even have homogeneous communities. It doesn't even exist. So the concept that I am the authority and I am saying, and therefore you have to follow, you know, good luck with that in 2018. Really good luck with that. You know, you can probably do that about three or four times a year with something. So, you know, if you want your daughter to come to the temple, there should be some inducement to come. There should be some reason to come. There should be something exciting to come. There should be something. And the last thing I want to say is that Pretty much, pretty much, with some rare exceptions. Everybody has something in their nature that will induce them to Krishna consciousness. It's just a question of finding out what it is. Some people are attracted to, to just doing a lot of service. They'll come to a temple where there's a lot of service they can do. And I see in this temple that the youth are encouraged and given facility to do services. That's not true in every temple. Some people are, are really love, you know, music and they love the kirtan. Some people really like meditation. Some people really like philosophy. Some, where is there a connection? Where can I connect the nature and the interest of my child with Krishna consciousness? And one of the things that happen is... is I may try to connect my children with Krishna consciousness the way I'm connected with Krishna consciousness. Maybe I love the philosophy, but maybe they're not a philosophical kind of person. You know, maybe I love big kirtans with 300 people and 1,000 people and huge festivals, and maybe they're an introvert and any, any crowd over five people stresses them out. You know, so it may not necessarily be that the way I'm enthused in Krishna consciousness. I mean, like when I first read the Bhagavad Gita, I thought anyone who reads this book is going to take up Krishna consciousness. That was the way I thought. I thought, oh, you have you just read this Bhagavad, you get it. That's it. And I was astonished that some people would read the Bhagavad Gita and not take up Krishna consciousness. I couldn't figure it out. How is that possible? But that just wasn't the way that they connected. You know, I mean, I, I meet people who've been devotees for 25 years who've never read the Bhagavad Gita. Oh, I don't like the Bhagavad Gita. I'll be like, you don't like the How can you not like the Bhagavad Gita? They don't like the Bhagavad Gita. They like Krishna book. And then I've had people who don't like Krishna book. I mean, I've met check-initiated devotees. They've been in the movement 20, 30 years. And they'll say, I don't like Krishna book. You know, I try not to, I'm like, oh. And inside I'm going, how is that possible? 
I mean, I know devotees will tell me, I really like Lord Chaitanya, I relate to Lord Chaitanya, I just don't relate to Krishna, and I'll be, oh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, we're, we're different. We're different, and there's, there's different aspects in our conditioned state and in our liberated state, we're different. Even in our liberated state. Bhaktisiddhanta says, some liberated souls in the spiritual world are only in Lord Chaitanya's pastimes. Some are only in Krishna's pastimes. And some are expanded in both. Who knows? So it, it's more to find what is there in Mahaprabhu's movement that will resonate with my daughter. It's more, more that. And, and where can I find some connection? But in general, if you force people, you'll actually push them the other way, whether they're children or adults. Or... Forced is like, you know, your kid's running in front of a moving car. You just grab them and pull them out of the street. You don't worry about how they feel about it. You don't worry about whether or not they're offended about it or whether they scream or it just doesn't matter. <laughs> but other than times like that, you know. You got a, a one-and-a-half, two-year-old kid and you're in the store parking lot and you have to go home and the kid is saying, I don't want to go to another store. And you just pick them up and put them in your car. You know what I mean? Just like, <laughs> you don't worry about it. And so there are times when, when using your superior strength and stuff is, is applicable, but in general, not. Anybody else? Everybody's coming now at the, at the end of this. Final, and when we're supposed to end is when everybody comes, right? They think 9.30 to 11 means it starts at 11. <laughs> pretty much, yeah. How do we promote the love for sibling within kids, Mataji? Sometimes kids are so nice and well-behaved to others, um, very well, but at the same time very rude to their own siblings. Is it natural for the child to behave like that? Or what should a parent expect out of the kids? Okay, well, we just actually talked about that a few minutes ago when you weren't here. Well, we talked about having, um, having sibling rivalry, having a caring competition and not envious, malicious competition. I think most of us behave more badly with the people we live with than with other people. I think that's normal. I mean, I don't want to put you on the spot, but you know, is anyone here behave better with their home family than they do with strangers? I don't think so. We're all more casual with our own family because we know they're going to love us anyway, and so we, we kind of relax a little bit. So that's, I think that's normal for everybody. It's even normal for this beautiful blackish boy here on the altar. So he's very rascally and naughty in Goloka Vrindavan, but we don't hear about that in Vaikuntha. In Vaikuntha, he's the king of kings, or even in Ayodhya. Right? So Lord Ramchandra, he's the epitome of dharma in an, in an ordinary sense. Krishna is not the epitome of dharma in our, from our mundane perspective, is he? Is he? Not at all. And why? Because he's in his most intimate home with his most intimate devotees. So Krishna's with devotees who don't even remember that he's God. 
they know, but it, it doesn't really interest them. And look at the last verse of the Shikshastika. You know, you may be a Lambataha, but still I love you. That's not the mood of, you know, Lakshmi and Sita. That kind of mood. So that there, that's there. And as far as how to teach your children, you know, again, we should have another seminar about discipline. <laughs> but not on this visit. So, uh, you know, you can get from somebody else. I recommended a list of different resources that you can get to help train your children in, in proper behavior. And don't expect it's going to work all the time. If you expect, I'm going to have a child that will be perfectly properly behaved all the time, that's not a reasonable expectation from another human being. It's not even a reasonable expectation from your computer, what to speak it from another human being. But there are, are systems, I mean, I mentioned a few of them, which I say you can get from someone else, um, whereby you can definitely get your children to a point where they'll be much more likely to behave properly. And one thing I did mention was we had this, this system of rewards which works pretty well most of the time. And part of it was that the kids could give each other uh, what we called love points as part of the reward system. So if somebody else treated you nicely, they did something nice for you, you could give that other family member a love point. And then we also gave negative points for rudeness and, uh, and fighting. And, and I found that once we put that in place within a week or two, that the, the level of which people were nice to each other in the house definitely went up. We have to remember that we're also human. So as I was saying before, the humility factor definitely comes into play. You can't expect your child to be perfect if you're not perfect yourself. So give your child that same benefit of the doubt that you give yourself. Yeah, that's another very good point. I mean, do, 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 can any of us say, I always deal with all my children and my spouse with the utmost respect? If one of you can say that, you should be sitting up here and I'll sit back down. <laughs> you know, so it, it's, it's like that. You know, I'm sometimes disrespectful to my family members. I'm tired, I have a headache, whatever. You know, they've screamed for the 15th time that day and I've just had enough. Whatever it is, you know, I'm sometimes disrespectful. So my children will also sometimes be disrespectful to, to expect them to be... I mean, another thing I, I should mention is, is, and is watch the, um, the other influences on your child's life. So watch the books, the TV shows, the computer games, the movies, uh, their friends. Their, there is increasing, in, increasingly in the world today, there's an attitude of disrespect towards everybody and anybody. You know, there's this simultaneous thing that would, we should respect anybody's lifestyle choices and anybody's way of being and however anybody wants to identify themselves, you know. I identify myself as a Martian or a lizard and you should respect that. I mean, we have, you know, there's that mood of, of idea of respect. But as far as, as like etiquette, I see that that's, going down in the world in general so you want to be careful about that if, you're, if your kids are reading books watching TV shows 
watching movies, playing video games, that's, where there's a lot of violence and where there's a lot of nastiness going on, that will also be reflected in their behavior with each other. And, you know, the opposite is true also. If the examples that they're encountering in their books and in the media and in their friends are that of polite dealings with each other, then they're far more likely to emulate that. So that's another area that you should look at. And it's... I wouldn't just, like, take your kids to the library, let them pick out any book, and let them turn on the TV and look at any show, and let them watch any movie, you know. Know what they're being exposed to. I don't remember how many years ago it was. It was a long time ago. I think it was in the 90s, where there was some um, movie about gang violence. And I remember my father telling me that people watching the movie would get so wrapped up that there were two shootings in the theaters during the movie. So that's an extreme example, but, you know, that we are affected by the, what we're exposed to. Was there another anonymous question we had here? Yeah, I do have. How to handle a teenage girl when they suddenly start changing? Well, you have to remember that the teenagers are just as bewildered by their changes as you are. You know, if we can remember when we went through those changes and how you basically, you know, all of a sudden you see the world very differently. You, 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 you know, your, your emotions change, your desires change, your intellectual processes change, your body's changing. So your whole sense of identity is changing. And it's a very confusing time for a person. It's, uh, you know, in, in one sense, our body and minds change constantly throughout life. But there's certain times when the changes are very dramatic, and that's one of them. And so to whatever extent we identify with our body and mind, to that extent it's going to be a very confusing time. And most teenagers go through some period where they're very emotionally unstable. And part of that is just that the chemicals in their body are such, it's affecting them and making them unstable. And part of that is that they have to kind of figure out who they are and how they want to behave. So a lot of patience and love and not taking it personally, not becoming offended, not thinking, you know, where's my sweet little kid gone? Oh, no. Um, being a friend, really being more of a friend. And I think uh, with a lot of these resources that I mentioned, a lot of listening to the other person, realizing that now that my child is becoming an adult, I can't deal with my child just like a child anymore. That the... Sorry, I'm looking at you because you read the question, but you didn't ask the question. I'm looking at you like it's... I'm focusing on you like it was your question. It wasn't your question. That, um, you know, I, I have to remember that my child is not a child anymore. And that if I deal with, it, with my child at 13, the way I dealt with my child at 10, my child's probably not going to respond very favorably. I need to deal with them differently. And especially the first year or two, 
as they as they go through that change, it's it's going to be hard for them, and it's going to be it's going to be hard for everyone as they figure themselves out. I mean, I've seen boys also go through about a year of just kind of they become very emotionally sensitive and very difficult. So it's a lot of patience, changing your relationship to that person, to your child, treating them with more respect, really hearing what they have to say, trying to be more of a friend than just an authority, being an authority friend, finding out what their interests are. Everybody wants you to be interested in what they're interested in. And be interested in what your child is interested in. Get to know them as a person. Get to know them as an individual. What, what their concerns are. And also at that age, people become energized by having responsibility. So if it wasn't done beforehand, which it should have been, but if it wasn't done beforehand, at least by that time, help your child get in, your teenage child get involved in meaningful service where they get to find out something about their nature and they get to use their nature in something that's meaningful for them. So try to pick up on what their talents are and do something to engage their talents. Again, that should have been done before then, but certainly by the time they become a teenager, certainly by age 14, they should be doing something where they're using their talents. And ideally where they can use their talents in Krishna service. If you can't find a way to do that, at least some way that you're nourishing their talents and their abilities so that they're doing something that's meaningful for them. Yes? Krishna? Hi, Krishna. Yeah. Um, uh, Mataji, is there something called balance? Uh, yeah. Let's say, for example, uh, with the studies, right, that they have to go through, uh, so my my daughter is by the way eight and a half year old and uh, between the studies and the spiritual practices let's say uh, or right reading the spiritual books uh, Krishna book or whatever and versus studies so because we have a limited time I work too I have other child so I mean there are other limitations right so considering all that situation uh, is it we, really we, we talked about this last weekend. So we did a seminar on this specific thing last weekend, uh, which was we called How to Have Time for High-Quality Sadhana in a Busy Life. And the most important thing for your child or anybody is spirituality. If you're a great student and, you know, you get all A's and you get into Harvard and... You discover a cure for cancer, but you don't have any spiritual life. I mean, it's nice that you have a child who discovered a cure for cancer. It's not that that doesn't mean anything, but it's not really a successful life in the ultimate issue. So you definitely want to prioritize the spirituality. And many parents don't. For many parents, spirituality is something stuck in here and there where they have time. And then you're saying to the child, spirituality is just some add-on. It's just like a dessert, which you can have a meal without a dessert. If you have it, it's nice. So spiritual practices should be the core. 
Yes, and um, and I definitely want to do the same. But then uh, it's very challenging to you know keep up with the other competitive world versus the spiritual. You don't have to keep up with the whole competitive world. You're in America. Your children have far more opportunities here than they have in India. And you don't need to worry as much about that here in this country. That's There's benefits of being in this country. Every culture, every country has its good points. One of the good points here is, you, and you certainly don't need to worry about that when a child's eight. Like, not at all. Not at all, not even 1%. You don't have to worry about that when a child's eight in this country. At all. Like, you can just let it go. You just simply stop worrying about it. Completely. If your eight-year-old child knows how to read, does your child know how to read? Yeah. Do basic math? Yeah, yeah. She goes to synergy. Does she like to learn? Um... It's kind of the similar questions other parents ask. It's like not just with the spirituality, but in general, getting something done is a big But she's challenge. eight years old. But she does. She's eight years old. It depends, like, depends on her mood. She doesn't have to get something done, some big thing done. She's only eight. You know, you can let children have a childhood. It's all right. Children are allowed to have a childhood. They really are. It's just, you don't have to push that hard. You're in America. You really are. You're in America. You don't have to do that. Just yesterday, my oldest grandson graduated from college, got his bachelor's degree in computer science. He was he went to Gurukul the first, how many years did he go to Gurukul? Three years he was in Gurukul, and then he was homeschooled. And, and Nitya has a very relaxed homeschool program. He went to, he was accepted in university when he was 16. He's initiated devotee. He's going to get married in a week to a lovely devotee girl. Did anyone ever super push him like that? Never. Never did that. It's just, you don't need to do that in the United States in 2018. You just don't. It's not required here. There are things here you need to worry about that you don't have to worry about in India. And that's not one of them. That's something you don't need to worry about here. That's something you can let go of. We have different we have some things here that really are problems. But that's that's something we don't have a problem with. Yeah, that's maybe my another follow-up, but that could be another follow-up question. Yeah, in, the, in this country, your children can be children. They can have plenty of time for Krishna consciousness. And if you're a reasonably responsible parent, your kid will be successful here in this country. You don't have to be pushing, 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 pushing for academics and study and academics. You don't have to do that in this country at this point in history. You just don't. It's not necessary. I mean, unless you have a kid that's just really has a problem. But for your for average children, you just you don't have to do that. You can prioritize spiritual life, and especially eight years old. It's just 
just like go, oh, I'm in America. I'm here. It's cool. I don't have to worry about that. My kid's in a good school. I'm in a country with gazillion educational career opportunities. A gazillion. So if she gets to be like 13, 14, and she isn't doing her schoolwork, that time you can worry about it a little bit, okay? But you don't need to worry about it at 8, not if she's doing okay. You, you can prioritize spiritual life. Maybe give it an hour a day. Solid hour to Krishna consciousness every day. Kirtan, stories, verses, whatever, whatever you like to do together. You can do that. Don't you just just relax, please, 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 please. It's like, do you have to worry in this country whether or not you're going to have enough healthy food available? Do you have to worry about that? You just don't have to worry about that here. At least not now. Maybe someday we will, but not not in 2018. You can go in a grocery store and you can find almost unlimited. You can find food from all over the world. Fresh fruits and vegetables, right? So many things. You, know, you, don't, you just don't have to be in anxiety about it. You just like go, oh, I don't have to worry about it. Make sense? So you don't have to worry about it. I mean, unless you have some very unusual situation, which just sounds like you do not. You know, if you had a kid at eight years old who couldn't read and couldn't add numbers, and I'd say, okay, then we need to do something. Yeah. So, I missed the, there was a follow-up question on the, when they observe the teenage girl is changing. So the, the question is that how to distinguish that influence? Is it because of the Krishna consciousness or it is from the outside world? I don't understand the question. The question is that, i just read it out. How then... Distinguish between home Krishna conscious environment and outside world influences. The changes that they are observing that Oh, well, some changes everybody goes through no matter what. You know, that's just wherever you are, wherever you live. Um, Becoming a teenager means you're reassessing your identity, you're reassessing your relationship with everybody because your identity's changed. I'd say as a general rule, if your kid's being exposed to outside influences that promote as normal being rude and nasty and disrespectful, you can assume that those outside influences are part of the problem that you're seeing. I think that should just be a safe assumption. So, you know, I remember once talking to a teenage kid that started becoming particularly nasty, and I said to this kid, are you watching some show on television where people are being particularly nasty to each other? And she said, yes. And I said, you know, you might want to stop watching that show. So I think you can take it as an assumption that if your kid at any age, but especially just going through puberty, if they're watching, listening to, etc., 
things where people are being particularly rude and nasty to each other, that that's going to show up in their behavior. To expect it not to show up in their behavior would not be very reasonable. But when, when people go from being a child to being an adult, they do have to renegotiate their relationship with everybody because they have a different sense of identity. And the parents and the elders have to be willing to renegotiate their relationship also. It's, if it's just one-sided, it's going to be, very, it's going to be a conflict. I mean, you know, if you think about it, a couple hundred years ago, people were getting married at 12, 13, 14 years old. You know, Lord Chaitanya got married at 14. Gandhi got married at 13. People were going into a career very young. You didn't have this long period of adolescence where people were not their own adults yet. Did you have one other question you said? Is there any right age when we can stress the importance of love and relationship or material comfort to our kids? Or when they're in the womb sounds like a good idea. <laughs> or do we Nah, I, I know. Come on. I think you should teach your children that money and furniture is more important than love until they're 12. I mean, what, what kind of a question is that? Seriously. Is there an age when you should teach them love is more important than material comforts? Has anyone ever been happy with material comforts without love? At any age? Is there like some age in which... I don't really understand the question. For everybody, children, anybody... Isn't love more important than material comforts? I know some really poor people who are happy because they have love. Don't you all know people who are poor and happy because they have love? I do. I know people who are really poor. I mean, like really, really, really poor. And they're happy because they have love. And I know people who are extremely rich who are unhappy because they don't have love. So, you know... Now, it would be nice to have love and material comforts. I don't... Does anyone in this room have to choose between them? Anybody here has to make a choice between material comforts and love? No. No. So, you know. Again, in this country at the present time, most people have more material comforts than almost anybody else on the planet. Even if you're lower middle class in America in 2018, you're probably, you're probably are wealthier than 99% of the people in the world, even in Western Europe. That's just a statistical fact. So most of us are able to give our children far more than basic material comforts from day one. So I, I don't see why why we need to why we need to be concerned about this we have enough material comforts let's 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 focus on the spiritual and not is anybody here like really worried about the material comforts anybody like really worried am i going to have a nice meal to eat am i going to have a chair to sit on so i i don't think we need to be we're we're blessed that's one of the you know, Krishna says those who've taken up Krishna consciousness in the previous life, 
they can take birth in a family of brahmanas or a rich family or a family of devotees. And you know that one of the benefits of that is you don't need to have all this anxiety about the material side of life. You can focus on the spiritual side of life. So that is our blessing here and now. It may not be our blessing five years from now. That's another thing. But that is the blessing that we have here and now. So we, we don't need to put the bulk of our energy into our material comforts. I mean, we have to think about it and take care of it, but not, not our main energy. Yeah? How, this is very beautiful. How do we explain this to our children without blaming them for their perceived needs that are actually like wants and excess? How do we explain to children that love is more important than material comforts if they want some sort of material comforts that we're yes. not giving them or that we I, can't have? I, I read about a case in uh, Los Angeles where a mother who was very wealthy, she went to court. I think her daughter took her to court. And there's other cases like this where, where she said, uh, you know, you gave me like $1,000 in allowance every week, and that's not enough money. I want more. And... Uh, I don't have anything to say about something. No, no, but the point is that the judge actually, not a Vaishnava, but he said to the mother, you gave your daughter so much material things that you didn't give her love. And the mother was like, this is like earth shattering to her. (laughs) Like, okay, I, I have to stop giving her so much material things and give her love. And the daughter even said that. She said, it's not my fault that you train me this way. Instead of giving me, you've said that to me many times, that you know, even though your father was a wealthy man and he had to go to work, um, that he made time for you. Obviously, this mother didn't. So how, once the child thinks, um, you know, whether we're giving them attention or not, we may be giving them, I've got 10 kids, and I swear none of them ever feel like I give them attention. So if I don't give my child enough attention in their world, or I don't give them enough material things to fill that, whatever. How do I explain to them that um, you know, A, we all have our limits, and B, even if I you know, try to give you everything material, it's not going to make you happy. I don't know. I mean, again, would any of us here say I'm absolutely 100% satisfied with every single way in which my parents raised me? So I think aiming for that, you know, aiming that my my children are going to understand and accept and be happy with my all my choices about how much attention I gave them when and how many things I gave them when is not a reasonable expectation on our part as parents. We're really not trying to please our kids. We're trying to please Krishna. We're trying to have Krishna be happy with us for how we raised our children. Every adult I know has something about their parents that they wish would have been a little different. It just is what it is, what it is, what it is, what it is. You know, I, I don't think there's I don't think there's some formula. And then kids are different. You know, I had one kid who never cared about getting any things ever. Like ever. Never asked me for toys. Never asked me for things. Never. Not food, not toys, not clothes, not anything ever, but was always completely satisfied with whatever was there. 
Then I have another kid who would ask me for something sometimes. And then I had another kid who, when I went to Toys R Us, would ask me for the whole store. <laughs> you know, so different people are also different. And, you know, if a kid feels that you didn't have enough furniture when growing up, you know, they can buy more furniture when they're 25. It's like... You know, I wanted the whole Lego store. Well, now you can buy it for your kids, the whole Lego store. You know, I was just going to give you a box of Legos. I, I, don't, I don't see that you're going to have a situation where all your kids... And like I say, the same, deci- like the same decision you can make. Like he was mentioning this other devotee who, who's gone now. You know, you can raise all your kids the same way, and some of them will turn out one way, and some of them will turn out another way. One kid may say, hey, you know, you spent too much time on academics. Another kid's going to say, you didn't spend enough, and you spent exactly the same amount of time with each of them. It, it, I, I don't think you're going to be able to convince them. So we would like everyone to appreciate us, and we would like everyone to appreciate how we provided for them and how we cared for them. Uh, they may, they may not. They may appreciate some things. They may not appreciate other things, but Krishna will always appreciate it. So, you know, each of us needs to do our best that we can in the moment. We can't do more than the best we can do in that moment. That's, by definition, we can't do more than the best we can do in that moment. To give our children our attention, to give them love, to give them, have a relationship with them, to take care of their comforts, to take care of their academics, to take care of their spiritual life. It's dependent on, you know, how much money do I have? How much time do I have? How much energy do I have? How many kids do I have? Where do I live? You know, does my spouse help me? How much does my spouse help me? Do my in-laws help me? Do I even like my in-laws? I, it depends on so many things. And your kids are going to grow up being very happy about some parts of their upbringing. You know, somewhat happy with other parts of their upbringing. Other parts of their upbringing are going to go, eh, I wish they really hadn't done that. And there may even be some parts of their upbringing that they really don't like. But, you know, child A may really not like something that child B thought was the best thing you could have done. And I see that all the time. That one kid will say, you know, wow, I loved that you did that. I'm so happy you did that. It was the best thing you did for me. And I'm doing that now with my kids. And your other kid will say about the exact same thing. That was the worst thing that you did. I wish you hadn't done that. There's no way I'm doing that with my kids. I hated it. And then you're just kind of like... Okay, what are you supposed to? I mean, I had this as a teacher. I'll end with this. So, as as a Gurukul teacher, you know, this is the kind of story that when I tell it, I figure no one's going to believe me. That you're all going to say, "Oh, she's making this up," or "She's exact." I swear that I am not making this up at all, or exaggerating it at all. So, on one day, one day, the same day in the afternoon, so this one mother comes and she says, "We were running a K through twelve school." So this was about high school students. She said, you know, I'm sending my daughter to your school because of your devotional aspect. So these was, was, we had boys and girls, K through 12, but these was both parents of girls, and these were both parents of girls in 10th or 11th grade. She said, I'm sending my daughter to your school because of the devotional aspect. I actually don't care about the academics. She said, so I don't want her to have any homework. 
because I want her to have plenty of time to do service at the temple, and the fact that she has homework is making it so she can't do any service at the temple. And I said, well, there's no way I can give your daughter a high school diploma just based on in-class work. It's, we don't have enough time. She has to do schoolwork at home. And I said, you know, I, I can't just say, everybody has homework except for this kid. It's not going to work. So she left dissatisfied. An hour later, a father of another girl in the same grade came and said, you're not giving my daughter enough homework. I said, well, how do you judge that? He said, well, she's able to go to bed at 10 o'clock at night. She said, he said, you know, I like the devotional aspect, but I'm really sending my daughter to this school because of her high academic standards, and I want you to push her more. And I, I said, Prabhu, I can't say to all the kids, you all have this work and you have extra. Hey, Krishna. You know, what's really, really funny about that is that over the years, I would sometimes have parents say to me, you know, you should run the school the way the parents want. And I'd always look at them and I'd say, which parent? <laughs> and, you know, and, and it's going to be like that with your kids. And especially if you have a lot of them, you really see the difference between them. You know, you might have just two kids who have the same mentality. But once you start having a lot of kids, you'll see that it, they're, they, they're different. And what they expect is different. And what they're satisfied with is different. So... Be careful that you don't want to explain it to them as a way of like, well, I want to explain it to them so that they'll connect with me and they'll understand me and they'll appreciate me. You know, get Krishna to appreciate you. Get Krishna, you know, Krishna already understands you. Have his appreciation. Do the best you can in that moment. Always try to improve. And and that's that's all you can do. and, And thankfully, that's enough. Thankfully, that's enough. You know, and it's, it's very interesting. I mean, you're just starting to enter into this in your own life. You're just about to enter it in, into it in your own life. But as I've seen my own kids, you know, be grown up and married with their own children, and now my daughter and son-in-law have their own grandchild, which is totally weird. And you see how your children raise their children. And you see that there's some of the things that you did as a parent that they're copying, you know, like a copy-paste and they're just copying it totally. And then there's other things that they're copying it partially, and there's other things that they're doing the diametric opposite. And so even if they don't say anything to you, just by observing that, you can go, oh, they really like that thing, and they really didn't like that thing. <laughs> and again, you know, when you visit the homes of your different children, and you'll see how they apply this differently, you'll definitely find it amusing, and, and instructive, and, and interesting that, you know, what one kid copy-paste, the other kid does 180 degrees the other way. And you see this, this, you know, very, very interesting how your children pick up different things from their own childhood with you and how they then translate that to their children. And, and you know, be happy if each of your children is very, very happy with a good portion of the things that you did. That's, that's enough. And if they, if they appreciate your, your good motives and your desire for them, even for the things that they didn't like, 
Is that right? So thank you very much. Shiloh Prabhupada, Ki Jai.